What do we really need at strange times such as this? Many people think we primarily need food and toilet paper. We can tell people think they need by what they are pursuing. And right now, food and toilet paper is flying off the shelves. But we know there is something that you need more than physical food and toilet paper. And that is the Word of God. Infinitely more necessary than anything else at this time is the faith-sustaining nourishment of the Word of God. The way we live our lives bears witness to what we really think about the Word of God. Do we really believe that we need it? And at times like these are when we need it the most. That is why I have prepared for you a meal, a feast on the Word of God. This is not just a nice talk. We don't need a nice talk right now. We need an exposition of the Word of God. You don't need some nice words from Isaac. You need to hear from the Word of God. I was thinking, what would be most appropriate, what would be most nourishing for us at this moment? And the passage that came to me was Isaiah 31. It happens to be the next chapter in Isaiah. How about that? But I believe that this passage is the perfect passage for the time that we are in. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 31 and follow along. I'm going to read. It is nine verses long. That's Isaiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus, said, for thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. The birds hovering, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem he will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols and, and silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic. Declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So what is the situation? The situation here is that Judah is in a very bad place. This is not the coronavirus, but Assyria. 
They are barbaric and they are brutal. And they are the angry bullies of the world. They are threatening Judah. Judah is small and helpless and weak before the Assyrians. And the Assyrians could easily rip them to shreds, both men, women, and children. From the human standpoint, they were hopeless on their own. Imagine the terror that Judah is feeling at this time. You have to try to picture what they are going through. They are in a terrible place. So there are really only two options, two directions they can go in. They could either trust God to save them, or they could turn to Egypt for their salvation. But they can't do both. And isn't that the way God works? God says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and Egypt. You either serve one or the other. Egypt looked really good. Egypt looked very promising. God did not look so promising with a physical eye. But God made it clear that his people were not to go to Egypt. God told them they were not to go there. In fact, God had showed them how powerful he was, that he was greater than Egypt by delivering them from Egypt. God had already proven that he was more powerful than they were. So what did they do? What does Egypt do during this time, in this pivotal moment, when they have to decide what are they going to trust in to deliver them? And the answer is, they decided to trust in Egypt to deliver them and to turn from God. We read this in verse 1. We read, They went down to Egypt for help and relied on horses and trusted in chariots, but did not look up to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. If you remember last week, we talked about how in, in, in chapter 30, uh, verse 6b, we talked about how God gave an oracle, a humorous, mocking oracle of Israel. It was actually directed towards the, the donkeys of Israel as they're traveling with their treasures to Egypt. And they're traveling to the one who sits, the one who does nothing. Egypt does nothing for them. And this is where they turn. This act of unbelief simply revealed what was already in their hearts. And so this chapter is all about God calling Judah to turn back to God. This chapter is all about God calling them to look to him for salvation. And it's really the same thing in that sense. The point is the same as last chapter. Look to God. Trust in him. In some ways, we are facing a very similar temptation today, aren't we? The virus is just one example of the difficulties we face when we're tempted not to really trust in God. And so we are called to trust in God today. This is the same response that we are called to take. I want us to look at the reasons why God gives for why we should trust in him and his response to Judah. Why should you trust in God today? The first reason why you should trust in God is because of what God thinks of unbelief. Oh, I want to warn you that God is going to tell us what he thinks of unbelief here in strong language. And before you label me as judgmental, I want you to understand that this is what God thinks of those who live in unbelief. And so if you have a problem with this, you can take it up with God. God says here that those who live in unbelief are evildoers 
and workers of iniquity. You can see that in verse 2. So what comes to your mind when you think of someone who is an evildoer or a worker of iniquity? Probably someone who is a murderer, someone who is an adulterer, uh, you name it. Someone who does those terrible sins. But probably not someone who simply does not believe in God. But God defines an evildoer or a worker of iniquity as someone who doesn't believe. God also says that such people are deeply revolting to him. Imagine God saying that you were deeply revolting to him. And what would we imagine as being deeply revolting to God? We can imagine many different things that we could think of as being revolting to God. But God says unbelief is deeply revolting to him. The second reason why you should trust God is because of what God is going to do to those who do not believe in Him. The judgment God is going to bring on those who do not believe. And the passage begins with the word woe. And this woe is really setting the tone for the whole chapter. And woe means that judgment is coming. It's a warning that judgment is coming. And judgment is coming to Judah because of unbelief. And listen to the judgment that God is going to bring against them. We see this in the second verse and the third verse. And then verses 8 through 9. I will read the second and third verses. God will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. And then verse 3. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. God says he is going to rise against the unbelievers. He is going to stand against them because of their unbelief. And he's going to bring judgment to them, and they are going to fall. They're going to stumble. They're going to perish together. So my question for you is this. Is God overreacting? I mean, this sounds like God is overreacting, doesn't it? Unbelief does not look like really that big of a deal from our perspective, at least compared to other sins. I mean, couldn't God have a little compassion towards Judah? Especially the fact that their women and children are in great danger here. You would think God would be okay if they looked for a little help from Egypt, outside of God. So why does God take this so seriously? And the answer is because of what unbelief says about the character of God. So you see, unbelief lies about God. Unbelief does not acknowledge the truth of God. Not only does unbelief lie about the character of God, but it attributes the character of God to other things. So in one sense, there are two sins that always go along with unbelief. We deny the character of God, we lie about God, and we attribute His great character to other things. You might ask, what does my unbelief say about God that is a lie? Your unbelief and my unbelief says that God is not all-powerful, that God is not all wise, and that God is not all good. And it says that other things are more powerful, that other things are more wise, and that other things are more good than God. Mm. Isaiah 42 verse 8 really helps us to understand why unbelief is such a big deal to God. Let me read this verse. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It is absolutely clear what God cares the most about in, in this verse. God cares, cares the most about his glory. An idol is anything which we erect to oppose his glory. And you might say that idolatry, idolatry is really the same thing as unbelief. They are really the same thing, aren't they? Idolatry, like unbelief, is substituting something else in the place of God. So you tell me whether unbelief is really a big deal to God. Is unbelief, does unbelief matter to God? And the answer is absolutely. You tell me why unbelief is therefore such a big deal to God. Unbelief is a big deal to God because it attempts to sabotage and steal the glory of God. But God will not allow there to be any competition with his glory. He will have none of it. And this is why God responds the way he does. God is correcting the lies. God is vindicating his name. God is speaking the truth in a world of lies. And God is showing by judgment that he is all-powerful, all-wise, and good. And this assures us that no one will ever escape God's judgment. As surely as God is concerned about his name, as surely as his name is great, will there be judgment on those who do not believe him and refuse to trust him. This is why the only way to be saved, the only path of salvation from God's judgment is through faith in his finished work on the cross. There is absolutely no other way to be saved. Think about it for a moment. The way of faith in his works speaks the truth about God. The cross displays his power, his wisdom, and his good goodness like nowhere else. Through the cross, God saves us by Jesus from God. <laughs> he saves us from God by God. He saves us from the wrath of God through the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is presently committed to refining us by stripping away the idolatry and unbelief from our hearts through sanctification, through discipline. And so God is changing us so that we will be a people who speak the truth about God with our lives. The third reason to trust God is because of the truth of the character of God. The truth is that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. The reason why anyone does not believe in God is because they do not believe that God is all-powerful and all-wise and all-good. If you do not believe in God, if you do not trust in God, if we act in ways of unbelief, it is because we do not believe God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. And notice how Judah failed to trust God because she did not believe God was all-powerful. We read in verse 1, they went down to Egypt. And why did they go down to Egypt? Because they are many, and they trusted in their horses because they were strong. But they did not look to the Holy One or consult the Lord. The emphasis here is on the amount of the horses, on the strength of the horses. You see, the horses in those days were like a tank. They were like the greatest um, like the jets we might have in our day, or the, the greatest weapons we might have in our day. And there were many of them. And so they saw that they were powerful, and so they trusted in them. Judah failed to trust God because 
she also did not believe that God was wise. You see, they acted the way they did because they thought they could outsmart God. They thought they could do it better their own way than the way God was telling them to do things. When you rebel against God, that's exactly what you're doing. You think you can do things better. You think the outcome that you have thought through and the outcome that you have planned is going to be better than God's ways. Judah failed to trust God also because she did not think that God was good. They took their own path because they thought their path was better. They did not believe that God was out for their best interest. And isn't this why Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? Isn't this why they sinned? They did not believe that God was out for their best interest, that God was good. They denied the goodness of God. And this is why God argues the way he does throughout this chapter. He is, in fact, showing that he is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. And therefore, trust in me. And God argues that he is all-powerful in verse 3. Notice that he makes an irre irrefutable argument. And that's the way God argues, doesn't he? Why he is more powerful than all others. Notice these words. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And, not spirit. and notice the simple logic from God here. It is obvious. The Egyptians are man. They are not God. This isn't complicated. You know, what are a million chariots? What are a million tanks versus the creator of them all? How foolish is it to trust in any other than God himself? God says he will show how much greater his power is by overcoming the seemingly more powerful Egyptians in verses 2 and 3, when he says he will rise against the house of the evildoers and the workers of iniquity. And he will stretch out his hand, and, they will, and, the helper, and the helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Notice how God displays his power here. The helpers are the Egyptians. They are the ones who were supposed to be the most powerful, weren't they? And God says they will stumble. He will cause them to stumble. Who is the more powerful? Now, and notice the helped are Judah. The Egyptians were supposed to help them with their power. But what does God say he is going to do with his greater power? He is going to, call them, he is going to cause them to, to, to fall. And notice what will happen. They will all perish together. Who is the greater one? Who is the more powerful one here? And he will do this with the mere movement of his hand. In verse 3. You can also see the greatness of his power and the fact that he'll accomplish every word he speaks. And here it is judgment. Notice in verse 2 it says, He does not call back his words. And this is where we see the power of God. God never does take backs. God never takes back his word. Everything he says, he does. Everything he says, he will accomplish. He never has regrets. Isaiah 55, verse 11 says this, So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is supreme, unrivaled power, and this is the power of our God. You can also see the power of God in sovereignty over evil. In verse 2, it says he brings disaster. Now you can imagine, what is the one thing that might have the upper hand over God? What is the most challenging thing to God, and you might say it's disaster, it's evil. And by the way, the word here is, the word for disaster is the same word used for evil. But it says here that God is going to bring the disaster, God is going to bring the evil against his people. 
And the evil here, the disaster, is the Assyrians. And they are brutal. They are terrible. They are awful. And they're going to do great damage to Judah. But God is purposefully bringing the Assyrians, the very essence of evil, against his people for their good. To bring them to their knees so that they will cry out to God. But what I want us to understand is that God is powerful even over evil. That God uses evil to fulfill his purposes. God uses destruction to fulfill his purposes. Just like Joseph said in Genesis 50 verse 20, they intended or purposed it for evil, but God intended or purposed it for good. This is good news that even evil serves God's purposes. God has the upper hand over all. God also argues here that he is all wise. Notice the words, the first few words in verse 2. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. What is going on in verse 2 is a battle of who is the wisest and who is the smartest. You know, you might imagine on one side is man and on the other side is God. Kind of like a chess match, right? Uh, who is the wisest? Who is the smartest? Who's, who can outsmart the other? And how could man possibly outsmart God? How could they possibly win? And the answer is they win by producing better results going their own way. By looking to Egypt rather than God and finding success in that outcome, Judah can win, right? They can say they outsmarted God. But God says, you can't do that. God says, you can't outwit me. You can't outsmart me. And I am going to show you how superior my wisdom is. And God says he is going to do that through bringing judgment on them through the Assyrians. Through the disaster of the Assyrians, he is going to bring judgment on them and show his superior wisdom. When Judah saw the Assyrians coming to their doorsteps, they were seeing the wisdom of God. God will vindicate his wisdom through his judgment. That is why we hear such words as Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You can't mock God. Romans 11 verse 33 says the same thing. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And this is why the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. We see his wisdom in his work of salvation. God also argues that he is good. You can see the goodness of God in the picture of him as a devouring lion and also as a compassionate bird towards his people who trust in him. In verses 4 through 5. God is pictured, first of all, as this untamed lion who is hovering over his prey. And who is that prey? Well, the prey he is hovering over is Judah. And notice, there are shepherds. And what are the shepherds doing? Well, they are trying to save Judah, the sheep. But the lion does not care about the, about the shepherds. He is not at all phased by them. He is growling, ready to devour Judah. And who are these shepherds? These shepherds are Egypt. Egypt was supposed to protect them. They went to Egypt for their protection. But what is God doing here? This is such a strange picture. 
God is showing that he is superior by bringing his people under judgment. And why does he do this? So that the very last hour, his people will cry out to him and he will save them. He brings them to their knees. And this is the strange work that we saw in chapter 28, verses 21 through 20, 29. This is strange. But notice, out of the blue, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God is pictured as a hovering bird caring for his people. Immediately, God is pictured as caring for his people as a bird. He is like a hovering mother eagle that cannot be moved from protecting her young. Even the purging judgment that God brings is God caring for his people and protecting them. God is determined to protect his people and nothing can prevent him from doing that. Notice the words that describe how much God cares for his people. God is going to come down to protect, to deliver, to spare, and to rescue. And these verbs all describe how God is going to care for his people. And God would literally do this, wouldn't he? At the last hour when Sennacherib comes to defeat Judah and defeat his people, God does protect them and God does deliver them and shows them his power and his wisdom and his goodness. You can see the goodness of the Lord and that he will save his people from all their internal enemies and obstacles in verse 7. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. As we have mentioned, idolatry and unbelief are really the same thing. Idols really are a challenge to God's position in our lives. They challenge us for our love and our devotion. And there are so many different things in our lives that can be idols to us. God is working to feed all idols from within his people. And a believer is someone who is in the process of having their idols cast out. God is working to expose and destroy the idols of our lives. The essence of faith is to see God accurately with our heart, to see him as he truly is, to see him as the all-powerful, all-wise, and good God. And faith sees everything else in comparison as worthless and as not good. And this is why the Bible is so God-centered and not man-centered. If you look from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that the Bible continues to magnify God and continues to humble man and to show us that we desperately need him. This is the message of the Bible. And this is why the Bible never makes us feel good about ourselves and always declares that God is great and powerful and mighty to save. He is the one we need. And the great battle is to believe that God is who he says he is. Every day, it is to delight and rejoice and find our confidence and salvation in him and to see that we need him desperately. There is coming a day in the future when God will cast out all idols. They will all be discarded and we will see his goodness perfectly and we will cast out every idol from our midst. You can see the goodness of God also and how he will save his people from all their external enemies by single-handedly defeating them. We see this in verses 8 through 9. God says the dreaded Assyrians will fall not by a human sword. And what is that defeat that God is talking about here? What is he referring to? He's referring to the destruction of the Assyrians that he is going to bring about. And we see this in 2 Kings 19 verse 35. 
where 185,000 Assyrians are struck down by God as he sends his eighth angel to bring a plague against the Assyrians as they are up at the door of Jerusalem, about to defeat them and destroy them. But God decisively defeats the enemies of God's people. The rock they were trusting in is found to be helpless. All their support and protection is removed by God. You see, the problem is, by standing against God's people, they had entered the fire of God's wrath. And as is often the case, God's defeating of the Assyrians is a picture of a greater victory that God will bring for his people on that day. There is a greater victory that is coming. This is just a picture of that is coming for us in the future when God will defeat all our external enemies, not only the internal enemies of unbelief that have so kept us from serving God the way we've wanted to, but also our external enemies, all those who have stood against God's people, will be defeated. There is an even greater victory that awaits us. And that day, all of God's enemies will be devoured. So we are to view God as a warrior, passionate to save his people. What a good God we have. You cannot separate God's salvation from the defeat of his enemies. And what will we do? We will rejoice in that day when God defeats our enemies. So what is the right response to this all-powerful, wise, and good God? What should we do? What is our response today? What should you do? Well, the answer is simple. The answer is we need to trust in God. Amen. Turn away from your worthless idols and turn to the living God. We see this in verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. To turn to God means to go in the opposite direction. This is a radical, a radical change. And the way we live our lives, the direction we are going in, reveals whether or not we are really trusting in God, doesn't it? And so we are to turn in the other direction, to turn towards God. Stop going in the foolish direction away from God and turn towards Him. Are you going in the direction of God today? And this change of direction is really described in verse 1. Verse 1 describes where they were going, and we are to go in the opposite direction. In verse 1, they were relying on Egypt. Now rely on God. In verse 1, they were trusting in Egypt. Now trust in God. In verse 1, they were looking to Egypt. Now look to God. What a radical redirecting of our lives. Our whole being is to turn towards God. Another way of explaining what we are called to do is to repent and believe. You see, we are to repent of denying that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and good. And we are to believe that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. Repentance and faith are really the same thing, just different ways of looking at it. Two sides of the same coin, just different angles. Kind of like saying to a runner, imagine if you went to someone who was running and said, are you running away from somewhere, or are you running towards somewhere? Well, they would look at you and say, that's a silly question, because I am running away from where I was and running towards somewhere else, all at the same time. Repentance is running away from sin and running towards God. And that's faith, right? The same thing. So with this coronavirus going around, you will likely have extra time to focus on God, extra time to look to Him. And that's what I want to encourage you to do during this time. Spend more time turning to Jesus, looking to Him. And for believers, turning to God, repenting and believing Him is a way of life. 
That is something that should characterize our entirety of our lives. It's not just a one-moment thing we do. We need to constantly repent and believe. And this is how we constantly speak the truth of God with our lives. Every day turning towards Jesus. And this looks like repentance and faith. One question I was asked this week is, what does it look like to trust in God in our daily lives? And obviously, the things that God clearly tells us to do, to trust in God is to obey Him and the clear things that He has called us to do. Just like Egypt in Judah. You know, God told them, don't go down to Egypt. So they weren't trusting in Him when they turned towards Egypt. And the same thing is true with us. What has God called us to do? He's called us to love our families. And we do that by discipling them. God has called us to love the church, and we do that by discipling the church, by, by, by leading them to Christ. We, how, do we, how do we do this towards our neighbors? We love our neighbors. We are called to love our neighbors by giving them the gospel. And that's how we know we are trusting in God, if we are living in obedience to Him. How about other areas of our lives, such as our jobs and who we marry? Well, principles from God's Word can guide us. Um, there are some things we cannot do because we're going to sin if we do them where other people might be able to do that? Am I making something an idol in my life? Am I going somewhere, am I moving somewhere where I can find a good church? There are principles that should lead us and guide us to make decisions in life. And prayer is essential for trusting in God. We should always pray about every decision we make. And the way we live our lives should be filled with prayer, directed by prayer. That is how we trust God with our lives. And if there are two equally good options, then I say, do what you want to do. If there are two equally good options, you are praying about it, you are obeying God, then do what you want to do. I think God gives us the freedom to choose what we want in those cases. The key is to see and delight in Christ, to see Him as the all-powerful, all-wise, and good God. And I pray, I pray that we, as a church, will fix our eyes on this God and that we will trust in him with our whole being. Let's pray. Amen. Dear Father, Lord, we ask you, God, to help us to turn our eyes towards you at this time. Lord, enable us to see your power. Enable us to see your wisdom. Enable us to see your goodness. And God, may you enable us to walk in your path, to trust in you, to follow you with our whole being. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you for speaking to us in your word. Thank you that we can hear from the living God. And I pray that you would cause us, cause us to trust and obey your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who has come to deliver us from our sin. We thank you for the great work of salvation that you accomplished on the cross. I pray that we would trust and look to you as the only basis for our salvation. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be characterized by repentance and faith in you, and that we would speak the truth with our lives, that you are who you say you are, and that you are the mighty and the saving God. In Jesus' name, amen.